You're listening to the Premier Podcast Network. Peace world and welcome everyone to a special edition of Foundation Radio. My name is Adam Bernard and thank you for joining me. Initially, I had planned on beginning a series of revisited episodes from the early days of this podcast. I didn't know exactly what the process I take would look like or how I would select episodes, but I know that there are many episodes in this feed that include fascinating and illuminating conversations with a wide variety of people. One of those people was a man named David Tuck, a survivor of three separate concentration camps during the worst genocide in the history of the world. David shared a story as far and as wide and as many times as he could to ensure people wouldn't forget about the horror, the trauma, the insanity that was the Holocaust. January 27th, 2023 will mark the 78th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, the most recognizable concentration camp name from that time. I will never forget the first time David rolled up his sleeve to show me the numbers that were forcibly etched onto his arm upon arrival at Auschwitz. A searing, bone-chilling, callous daily reminder of the violence and the horror he endured while he was captive there. It was a unique feeling, one of initially an uncertain disbelief, and then of a solemn seriousness, the gravity of which I'm not entirely sure I still have my head fully wrapped around. I imagine for a moment what it must have been like to have been forced into a crowded, stuffy train car filled with other poor souls who didn't even know what their fate was, let alone their destination. A terrifying sense of dread overcame me as I tried to reassure myself that something like this could never actually happen again. Because we had learned too much, and we had observed too much, and we had collectively and individually understood that this level of evil, this level of violence, this level of horror couldn't and shouldn't ever be tolerated again for any reason. And that it was our collective responsibility to ensure that we acknowledge the warning signs should they present themselves. And that we would act in a manner that would keep those around us, especially the most vulnerable, safe, no matter the cost. Each day, new stories of horrific anti-Semitism arise in this country and are replayed. And anti-Semitic tropes are regurgitated and rehashed and reshaped by musicians and politicians and even former presidents of the United States. We march into the future as uncertain now as we were back then as to what the future holds for us. The Atlanta Jewish Times estimates that there are only 50,000 Holocaust survivors that are still with us in this country alone. And the Times of Israel reports that there are over 161,000 survivors living in Israel to share their stories, to share their lives, to remind us to never forget. David Tuck was one of those survivors until he passed away on Sunday night, January 8th, 2023. I couldn't think of a more prescient, appropriate, and needed revisit than episode one of Foundation Radio. I thank you for listening, and please enjoy this revisited episode with Holocaust survivor David Tuck. The following episode of Foundation Radio contains subject matter that may be sensitive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, welcome to a very special episode of Foundation Radio. I am Adam Bernard. I'm here with Greg Mead and Taylor Cooper. Um, We had this amazing opportunity uh, last week to sit down and talk with David Tuck, who is a survivor of the Holocaust. Um, And we wanted to just sort of give you some context before the interview aired and kind of give you some reactions and some things that we thought about and things that we took away from that uh, it was pretty amazing. Um, I've never really had an experience like this. Greg and I have interviewed several people before this, um, but no one in this kind of caliber. 
uh, no one in this range. Um, what did you What did you think, Greg? What, what was your What was your takeaway from it? I was entirely flabbergasted the entire time. Um, I knew I had some questions prepared going in, but once Dave started talking, all of my thoughts just kind of went out of my head, and I just knew that I needed to listen to this man talk and hear what he needed to say. Um, it's not a traditional interview where it's like a Q&A back and forth. It's pretty much we let Dave tell his story. We ask some questions because, you know, it it's very interesting and the human mind just wants to know more about it. But at the same time, you know, it's entirely heartbreaking to hear that this happened to this child. He's now a man, but when this happened, he was a child. I mean, he was 10. Yeah. So it was 1939. You'll hear the story when he talks about it, but he was 10 years old when the Nazis came in and invo- invaded Poland. Yes. And that was when that process began. I mean, I I couldn't imagine being 10 years old and my entire life falling apart. You know, not just for me, but everyone I knew the entire community and then being forced into a ghetto and then to a labor camp. I mean, not just one labor camp, it was four. And this is before he's even, he's even 15 years old. All of this happens before that period of time. It's just the, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to do this interview and I wanted to talk to David was because it's a personal thing for me. My grandfather uh, served in World War II. Um, he was in the 20th Armored Division. Uh, he was in the subsection, subgrouping of its uh, C Company in the 220th Medical Engineers. My grandfather never spoke about the war. The only story he ever told us was the time that he drove General Patton in his car. Uh, he spent three days, three or three weeks with General Patton. He drove him around uh, Germany. And that's really the only thing he ever told us about the story. So when he died, he died in 2014. Uh, we were going through his house, kind of cleaning everything up, and we found this book about the 20th Armored Division. And here it turns out they are liberators of Dachau, uh, which is another concentration camp uh, during World War II. And my biggest regret in life is that I was never able to sit down and kind of ask him. I think there was a reason he didn't talk about it. We're still working to confirm he was there at the camp. Uh, typically most of the medical brigades were there at those types of events. So he, it's likely that he was there, but we're still working to confirm that. But because he was part of the 20th, he has the designation of being a liberator. You know, we're, we're getting really pretty far removed from World War II. I mean, we're, what is it, 2019? I mean, we're probably close to 70, 80 years away from it popping off. A lot of these voices and a lot of the people that were involved in this event are no longer with us. You know, my grandfather's gone and there's no way to retrieve that information. It's gone with him. They don't even teach this stuff in school in all the 50 states. That's I just read a story the other day. I'm glad you said that, Taylor, was that Oregon passed a law that it's it's required to teach the Holocaust and the the events of World War Two, because it's not just, you know, it it is encapsulated in World War Two. Right. Like it's part of this this story. But it's its own event in a way. And a lot of people don't discuss it. They, in fact, they, there's an entire segment of people that deny it ever happened in the first place. So for me, it becomes another part of that personal mission to, to bring this story out and say, listen, you know, we need to re- I want this recorded. I want to be able to reference this. I want people to hear this story because who knows how many more times we'll be able to hear stories like this. 
and we're right. able to capture this. So Taylor, what did you what did you take away from it? Um, I took away my my two biggest takeaways. Um, a was just how great of a guy he is, and his outlook on life, and how positive he is. Um, that that really hit me really hard because of all the things that he described uh, him going through uh, at such an early age, and how like that you think about what happens to you as a human being at that age ten. 12 years old those are the events that shape you you know for the rest of your life and i i don't think that i would have come out as positive and as you know uh uh uh, just good-hearted good-natured as he did you know and Mm -hmm. and that's what i was thinking about and the other thing that i was thinking about is straight up that um i will never ever entertain um a Holocaust denier ever, 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 ever. Not that I ever have, but like now I just, I've heard directly from somebody that was there that mm-hmm. saw it. And, um, it just, it blows my mind that there's people out there that are just like, Nope, didn't happen. Yeah. Impossible. Totally denied it. I, I impossible. Didn't, I didn't see it. Didn't happen. Impossible. What's crazy too, is you look at David, well, gladly show you his arm. And I did not know that Auschwitz was the only place that tattooed the numbers. When you see that tangible piece of his story, you know, that really just solidifies it. There's no way to deny that. There's no way that you would be able to deny that. Right. And that, that the first time I met David, I did a, I'm a photographer and I did a photography event for Jeff. Shout out to Jeff Quinn from the Holocaust Awareness uh, museum and educational center for setting this up. By the way, I really cannot thank you enough. Thank you, um, but the first thing he called me, I did an event for them. They had a, an auction they do every year, and I had the pleasure of meeting David before the auction began. And I, you know, they were talking, and he, you know, hey, let's, you know, would you mind showing us your numbers or your, you know, your your arm? And it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that in person. Um, and I didn't really know how to react. You know, you don't really know how to react when you see something like that. Um, uh, but to me, like you said, I just, I, I can't imagine a world. It's the same thing with people who deny Sandy hook, right. Or a horrible event like that. Like how, what, what part of your brain makes you that way? Like I, I can be a kind of a conspiracy theorist sometimes, but I can't take myself to that level of just denying something that horrific. Yeah. I mean, affects so many people. UFOs, Bigfoot, yeah, 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 cute, yeah, right, right. Who killed JFK? Uh, You know, stuff like that. Too Mm, cute, but but it's it's not cute. It's interesting, right, right, right. But like this, the Holocaust. How can you possibly say it didn't happen when there's still people on this earth that lived it, and like Dave, David, that want to tell their story and and. How powerful it is I can't wait to get his book. I can't wait to get his book. Yeah, make sure you you go if you um you go to hammock.org, that's H A M E C dot org. Uh, reach out to Jeff Quinn um and they'll be able to get you set up with David's book um and get you all squared away there. Don't buy it on Amazon. Yeah, so. stay away from yeah, Amazon. They'll, yeah, they'll, <laughs> they'll take they'll take Harry over there at yeah, uh, at they'll, Hammock. They'll give you a discount at a hammock. My wife Jackie came with us and yep. she had a great time too and um just Total pleasure meeting David. She she loved his story and hearing about it just as much as I did. Um, and it was it was different for me because I didn't have a mic in front of my face. Um, so it was great for me to just be there just to listen. 
just to listen. He's so articulate and he's so he knows exactly what points he wants to get across. And he also knows exactly what he doesn't want to talk about. Also, uh, this might change your opinion of Dave, but <laughs> while you were setting up, he was all about Jackie. Oh, I know. Oh, yeah. I, I caught I caught oh, him yeah. asking, Are you on Facebook? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which honestly made me like him even more. I was like, Yeah, David, go ahead. Go ahead. Doesn't care at all. <laughs> Husband right there. Ah. So David's book is called David Tuck, A Story of Holocaust Survival. Like I said, you can go and reach out to Jeff at, uh, at Hammock, and they'll be able to get you squared away with that. Uh, so without further ado, here is our exclusive interview with David Tuck. We hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you again in two weeks. Okay, so we are here for a very special episode of Foundation Radio, Greg. This is uh, this is exciting. It is. Um, we are here at the Holocaust uh, Awareness Museum and Educational Center here in Philadelphia. Um, we are here with Jeff Quinn, who is the Education Director. Hello there. And we Hi, are Jeff. here. We have a very special guest. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about the place that we're in right now. Yeah. So... First off, thank you guys so much for coming out to the Holocaust Awareness Museum and Education Center. You can just call us the Holocaust Awareness Museum because it's a mouthful. Yeah, yeah, yeah there's a lot there. So, it's like Shield. <laughs> <laughs> so we're located out here in Northeast Philadelphia, uh, ten one hundred Jamison Avenue. We're actually located out of the Klein Life, formerly Klein JCC. It's a community center. We've been here for quite some time. The museum itself was actually established in the early 1960s by our founder, Yaakov Riz. He was a survivor that had made a promise that if he had survived the Holocaust, he was going to dedicate his life to educating individuals about what happened during the Holocaust. Fast forward, he settles in Northeast Philadelphia. He establishes this museum in his basement. And so it's been a staple in the Northeast Philadelphia community for a long time, but it's kind of like, and still is a hidden gem. But our organization, we have a resource center here that teachers can reach out to us to get more information for those people who are teaching the Holocaust for the first time. And they reach out to us and they go, I don't know what to do. This is my first time doing this. And I say, it's go- it's okay. <laughs> we have books. Here's, yeah. here's a teaching guide or two. And right. if you have any other questions, just let me know. More importantly, we work with individuals that survived the Holocaust are survivors and liberators, actually, that will go out to schools in the Philadelphia area and Philadelphia itself to share their testimonies with students firsthand so they're able to learn about history from primary resources. Right. The way that we have this, the way that we have this program set up is that they contact us. We give them information about the survivor that they're going to be meeting. They have to share it with the students so they can develop questions because we build a question and answer session into Mm -hmm. all of our programming with our survivors. Survivors go out, they share their testimony with the students, they get questions from them, and we've heard such a wonderful variety of questions. That's great. That's the great thing about kids is they have no shame in asking the things that we're kind of like nervous to ask. Right. It just comes right out of their mouths. And Well, I think as people can be uncomfortable with the topic, I mean, this is a really heavy discussion and it's you know for me at least it's like oh this is yeah pretty this is pretty deep you know yeah and i mean you have an opportunity to kind of look around at the artifacts that we have here i mean we have a canister of zyklon b we have shoes that belong to people in the concentration camps we have a uniform so when people come in here it can be a little bit daunting and then they're like how do you do this every day i'm like well i work with survivors Mm -hmm. that's yeah it's hard to be around this stuff and this history but 
you're going to have an opportunity to talk with our guest, David. Yes. Who, you know, when you get an opportunity to build this relationship and hear from the survivors, you can't help but be inspired and smile because they're, they're incredible. And the students understand that. Mm-hmm. That's what's really cool. And basically, that's what I do every day is I get to work with students and teachers to make sure that this history is continue to be told. And I get to hang out with guys like David and go out to school sometimes. But most of the time, I get to make sure that students are able to hear this. And I hear the wonderful feedback and we get letters and and gifts for the survivors and most of the time when i have an opportunity to go out there it's like mick jagger arrived and everybody (laughs) wants to like get an autograph yeah and it's really cool and yeah i'm the happiest person working in the most miserable subject well that's a that's a i mean yeah you gotta spin in a way that makes you happy so (laughs) i mean they're right if you were in here and you didn't spin away that made you happy it would probably get to you yeah you have to have the right mindset and some days are harder than others. Educating but people. Yeah. It, at the end of the day, I get to work with great people yeah. and I feel like what I'm doing is important and having an impact. Absolutely. Yeah. Because this is, I mean, you know, we were talking before we started recording here and David had made a good point. Like it's, you know, we're, we're getting so many years removed from the Holocaust and World War II and the events that happened and those primary sources are slowly fading and this is a topic that's important for me as the grandchild of someone who was a liberator having this resource having someone like david be able to share his story not just with us today but in general it's it's important to record this and keep it and say listen this is this is something that happened this is a real event these are real people this is a horrible part of humanity's history but you need to know about it because it's important and that's Kind of where I'm going to tie in here with uh, with our guest today. This is uh, David Tuck is here. Um, we are so happy to have you on our show. Thank you for agreeing to doing this with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Welcome, so, Mr. Tuck. I wanted to just kind of get a brief background first about your your history. Um, so you were born in Poland. Right. And then your mother passed away when you were six months old, right? Either six or six weeks. Six weeks, six months. So you went to live with your grandparents. Tell me, tell me about your grandparents and your early, your early life. They were, it brings back memories. It comes back that uh, first, I never knew my mother. I was brought up by my grandparents. They had four boys and a girl, and the girl died. My grandparent took me in. He was a religious person. At that time, they were religious. He was mm-hmm. a tailor. Okay. And then... Every morning when he went to to work, worked at home. At that time, the tailors worked at home. But I was, I think, four years old. I could understand and walk already. He took me with him to the temple. And then when I got older. It was different. The temple, public school, and then the religious school. All three of them. Life was a little bit rough. At that time, they were 60, 60 years. They were older already. I don't think he made a decent living. At that time, I didn't think about it. Just that. And what happened years went by. One day, vacation time. Every year I went to another uncle. One of them wind up in Germany. I never saw him. I don't know. He took off from Poland and went to Germany. I don't know what the reason. He stayed there. And one of the uncles said, David, somebody wants to see you. Talk to you. I said, who is somebody? Now, I was 80 years old already. He said, you got to find out. Somebody came in. My uncle said, that's the man who wants to see you. And the man said to me, David, I'm your father. Now, if I would be older, I would ask him, why it took you so long? But at that time, I couldn't say this. And he said to me, 
David, there's a mother there, two sisters and a brother. Why did you come live with me? Wow. When I heard this, my uncle said, go. I start crying. I want to go back to my Bobby. And my uncle said, David, if you're not going to see it, if, if you want it, you don't like it, you can come back. I went with them. I met his ex-wife. They had two half-sisters and a brother. I was treated like an outsider. Now, I know I'm on the air now. I don't want to go into the details. But I'm repeating myself. I was an outsider. And life must go on. And then, two years later, the war broke out. We used to live with my father to join the border. I speak the language. Mm. And first, the Germans gave us to wear yellow armbands. And this was September 1939, we're talking? Yes. Sometime yeah. around there, right? That was, when, detail, that was when the war broke out. Yeah, People know what it is. And uh, I was repeating my boy, yellow, yellow armband. Then they were a star of David, one at the front and one at the back. Then they gave us numbers. In our town, we lived with my father. There were many two Jewish people. If there were 18 Jewish families, it was a lot. A lot of was living Polish people and German people. And then after a while, a friend of ours came in and Hitler met him to go over Poland. I came in, a friend of ours, a German, and he told us, they're going to give you 48 hours. Get to get as much as you can. You're going to go to a ghetto. The day came, we took as much as we took. And from all the towns, there were 164 adult children. Now, the Polish population was 34 million. 10% of the population were Jewish, 3,400,000. 3,200,000 didn't make it back. From every 10 Jews, nine of them perished. And we wind up in the Lodge ghetto. Not right away because they didn't have the place there. So what they put it in, in the buildings, there were old factories. Because I remember I found them a lot of letter. And letter people wanted at that time. And I, I tell you the truth, I was doing some black market. I picked up the letter, sold them. I don't know. I did the best I could. I never, you never heard of it, right? It's the first time I told you. Yeah, this is the first time you're telling me this. I just remind myself. And then a year went by. But before the year went by, the men came in and told us, you can move in already to the ghetto, from those buildings. We moved into the ghetto. They gave us a, a home where to live. Then they closed up the ghetto. And then they guess anybody speak German, come to the office. My father and I, we went to the office. And they interviewed my father. Then the, the guy looked at me. He said, I, yeah, I, I, told, I started talking to him in German. He said, no, you can talk in Polish, Yiddish, you know. And then he said, uh, how old are you? I said, in December, I'm going to be 10 years old. And he said, 15. Now, why did he say 15, right? Yeah, well, yeah, what was Because at 5, at 10, I couldn't produce nothing. I have no right to live. You have to be at least 15. And they told me, you know something? Why don't you work in the office for a while? I don't know. My father didn't work. I did. I was giving out ration cards. But he told me, not me only, a lot of them, from now on, you're going to be a mechanic. But you're only working temporarily here. Then the time came a year later. They're calling up all 15 years old, old adults, sign up. You're going to go for three months to work. It was a lie. But they just they even promised that they're going to pay us. So my father and I, we, we went over there. And then the guy said they're going to go to work. Three months. It was a lie. We wind up in a city, Posen. Big city. Not far from where I used to live. And this is in Poland, right? Yeah, that's okay. where I used to live, right, in Poland. We wind up there, was a stadium. They put up bunk beds. This stadium, if you have a chance, look up, if you can find the Poland Stadium. 
I have to sit hours in to tell you what was going on there. And then we put it in line. There were over 900 of us in the stadium. We're not going to work there as a mechanic. I'm going to build now the autobahn. You know, autobahn means the turnpike. Right. I was waiting in line. My number is 176. My father was in front of me, so 17576. And then what I'm going to use it, I tell the students, would you please pay attention? Every morning I used to wake up 4 o'clock. There were no showers. We had to wash ourselves. We were lucky because we went to the bathroom. We took some, and we washed ourselves. Then they gave me a slice of bread in the morning and a slice of bread in the evening and a coffee and a soup in daytime. If you find a potato, I was lucky. And you're 10 years old while this is going, 10, yeah. 11 years old. Yeah. I guess in my mind, I'm thinking now as you're talking, I'm reflecting on my own childhood and the things that I went through, through as, a, as a kid and the things that sort of mattered to me as a child pale in comparison to what you must have been going through like mentally at that like what what was going on in your mind as this was as this was all no, taking the, place when i went to sleep i prayed to god please god let me see the light the next day if i would i don't want to go on later years again yeah, yeah, yeah. if i would have if i would hit the piece of bread because picture this i see a piece of piece of bread it first of all it's not white it's brown I don't know why they got it brown. And then they give us a soup. The soup was just, you're lucky you find a potato. And they give us another slice of bread at night. The first time I got a slice of bread, I ate it. I was hungry. Then I was hungry the whole day. Later on, I used to take the slice of bread, put it behind my shirt, enabling on it. Because I knew this right away. The first time when I ate it, I was hungry. Then this was my job. Put it in. I felt a little bit hungry. Took a bite, put it back in. And then what happened, instead of going to the factory to work, they're going to build the autobahn. The turnpike put me in another guy. By the way, I think I, I mentioned to you, did I get the number already? 176, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, this was gone. Another guy with me, but digging dirt up over there, rocks, everything, chopping. I said, it's hard work. I tell you, I have it in, uh, I have it in Yiddish, I have it. There's a word chutzpah. Yeah. That's me guns. Mm -hmm. Because as a kid, I was growing up, I do those things. I did it. Because when I was a little boy, nobody wanted to play with me. Because I had no brothers and sisters. I went out to play. Nobody played. Everybody went home. Everybody, mother and father. I had nobody. So I had a lot of gods. I tried playing soccer, kicking the ball. I didn't care what they were saying. That's happened. And Paul, at that time, and I went to school already. After school, both Hebrew and public school. If a teacher saw me playing soccer, he said, did you do the homework? That's the, he didn't care if I played soccer or not. Did you do the homework? And the most important thing is that Education at that time. Those teachers at that time were rough. Even the rabbis were rough. Everybody. They pinch your neck, ear, they pinch your cheek, everything. Just to make education. That's the most important thing. They were wrong. I didn't, as a kid, we didn't like it, but what can we do? Yeah. And so now I'm in camp. I lived there every day. I prayed to God. God, let me see the light the next day. Years went by. How long, then, I'm sorry, I'm interrupt. How long were you in Posen for? Two years. Okay. One year in the ghetto, two years in Posen. And after a while... People were dying, people committing suicide. And the camp was rough. When I was digging dirt, building this thing, after a while I saw the guy got himself a trailer, the foreman. I had knocked at the door, walked in, and he said, what are you doing here? I said, I want to work for you. What can you do for me? I said, I make, in the morning, I make your bed, clean your place up, bring your food from the kitchen. And for me, the most important thing, get to the kitchen. I figured if I get to the kitchen, bring your food for him, I will get some extra food. He liked it. I went to the kitchen the first time. And I asked the guy, I food, everything, for him. 
Then I said, could you give me some a piece of bread, anything? He said, we can. Now, I understood him later. They can because if they give it, I speak, if they find it with me, where did you get it? They're, they're in trouble, that, or they're going to get rid of them too. Then him, he's sitting and eating. After I was fin- he was finished, he took everything, the trash, the plate, everything threw it in the trash can. I would go over to the trash can, pick up his plate, every piece of the trash can, and I ate it. And he was laughing. And I said to myself at that time, you may laugh, me time I have an extra piece of bread. It wasn't too much, but it was helping me. Because I knew after almost two years I'm losing weight. And this was going on for months. And then it's almost two years. I'm losing weight, I'm getting skinny and skinnier. After two years, they're closing. After the war, I find out there were 25 labor camps, just Jewish people. We had no connection with the world. We didn't know what was going on. Nothing. That was going to be one of my next questions was, at, did you at any point realize or kind of have any concept of what was taking place, or was it just more of this? Just I know there was a war. You, you know, knew the war, yeah, right. But yeah, but We figured that's the way it is. You know, as a young boy, I didn't care. I just cared to survive. That's all. And I, once in a while, I asked myself, why me? Here I lost my mother. I have no, nothing but myself. Why? It, it's many times I wake up in the meantime, now even. And I said, why did that always happen to me? So a little bit of context is that something that we try to talk to the students about is that it's a great question of like, you know, did you know what was going on on the side or, you know, when Adolf Hitler was coming to power, like what were people saying and what were your thoughts? These are all children right. at that time. Right. Maybe their parents talked about it a little bit from our German survivors, but it's not something that really crosses your mind at that age. Like, can yeah. you recall the the debates that were going on? In- when I was 10 yeah. or 12? No, I mean, I, I. it's hard for me. Like when I think about even as when I was a teenager and 9-11 happened, like I don't remember how I felt when that happened, you know, like, and then that war started, you know, all those different things. Like I'm trying to find something that can even be close to that comparison, but I was too worried about being a teenager at that point and comparatively to everything else. Like, I don't know if I would have really paid attention to something like that. If that was, you know, and I, I think that's pretty common. Yeah. You know something I paid attention to nine 11. Well, I did. Yeah. I'm saying, yeah, yeah, I'm just trying, I'm trying to think about like a different example of, yeah. The other thing is that the, the Nazis didn't want the people who were in these camps, especially when we get to the part of the final solution, right, to know what was going on. Yeah. Because the easiest way to control a population is to make sure that they're naive about it. Right. And not in a negative sense. Like they don't know what they're yeah. walking into. Control of information will control the people. So and that's so it'll make it way easier the, for them to do what they want. Huge things was either misinform or don't inform. Don't give them the correct information. And like the individuals who are working in Auschwitz, which Dave is going to get to later in his story, um, when they're talking about the crematoriums and the gas chambers, the prisoners who operated those, they knew what was going on, but yeah. they had a they didn't have longevity. Yeah. It wasn't like they, they could do anything. I mean, there, there wasn't anywhere for them to go. It wasn't. And they were the first people that knew. So right. in order to keep that information from going out, you get new people to do it. Yeah. Very short shelf life. So when, when did you go? When did they move you to Auschwitz? When after when two they? years? Okay. One day they said, "All of you going to Auschwitz." I didn't know Auschwitz exists. I didn't know what that meant. They gave us a passenger train. Why a passenger train? 
we are mechanics. They have a factory for us now. We wind up in Auschwitz. Remember the gates that go into Auschwitz? Mm-hmm. How about my fry? If you work, you go free. Yeah, you die. That's when you go free. The train got into Auschwitz through the doors and keep going. You ever heard of Birkenau? Yeah. Yep. All yeah, the gas chambers, all the crematorium were there. There was a connection between Auschwitz. The train continued going. I got off the train, the passenger train, they dropped, they dropped us off. Music is playing. I said, what's this? I never forget women and children one side on the left side, the men on the other side. We didn't know about Auschwitz. See, people came into Auschwitz late. They knew about Auschwitz. But me, those three years, I didn't know nothing. And they told us, get on trucks. Now, those poor women and children, they didn't know that they're going to go to the crematorium. All the gas chambers were there. Working now. And that took us back in five minutes. We were in Auschwitz in front of an office. We got into the office, waited in line. Then I was seeing an assessment, black uniform, you know, sitting around. This interview went about. Up to me, it looks at me. And he said, Do you miss that Jude? Are you Jewish? Yeah, it's been a Jude. Yeah, I'm Jewish. Are you against Hitler? What do you think I said? I said, I nine. You're going to say no. Yeah. Nine. Or not going to say yes, right? Then, yeah. then he got up. I thought he was going to get kill me. Then they repeated again, the best on Jure. I said, it's been a Jure, but it's not against Hitler. He said, get out. I opened the door. When I opened the door, I remember. Thousands of people walked around in a blue-white stripe. See the stripe, you know? It well, was that, much, yeah. That was, was, what was, I was much, gonna, when I was researching this, that they this is the only camp that had that's that. That's right. You right. see, the people denying it, but I know I know it, but I don't, I don't care what they say. I was there. I look around. I found it later from every country in Europe. Every country, there were people there. Every nationality, there were people there. And everybody's wearing the uniform. So first thing, I walked over. A guy gave me a haircut. Then he gave me a tattoo, a number. I still have it. That's on your yeah, left arm. The first time I saw this, I did a, I did a photography, did some photography work for the event mm-hmm. that uh, the Our, Holocaust Awareness Museum had. The fundraiser, That's yeah. The, the first time I saw that, I showed you before. You I didn't have, I couldn't quite come up with the words to describe what was kind of what I was feeling at that time. To look no, at that. only Auschwitz had it. Right. They gave me tattoo. There was something like a needle, a big needle with ink in it, and punching holes. Because now I walk around, I see people all over the bodies. Now it just hurts, but it is. It, it, they said it doesn't hurt, but they hurt me. You pinching holes, and I still have the number. And people ask me if I want to get rid of it. I said, why? Leave it there. It doesn't bother me. Because I don't sit there and dwell on it. I got this number, and then I went to, went to sleep. Everything nice. Everything the same. The same but like in, in the stadium. The same thing. Wake up 4 o'clock in the morning, we got the slice of bread. Everything the same. Now already after two years, I'm skin and bones already. I'm glad I can still walk and talk. Went to work. Now I'm waiting in line. The first time I saw a civilian, engineer, now I'm going to build big guns, 88 millimeter guns. And the engineer looked, got me my number from Auschwitz already. I gave him the number. He said, and then he said, this number, you're a machine mechanic. Now, why did I say machine mechanic? They figure if I'm a mechanic, I have to be a specialist. A machine, you know, they give me a machine. I work on the machine. I did it over there. He said, he took me over to a table, something like this. Mm-hmm. There's playing a big, big block of steel. I don't feel you know the big guns, the eighty-eight millimeter. You yeah, know where you put in the yeah. bullet, the gun. Mm-hmm. There's a big block. It locks it up. That's the block. 
I didn't know what, what I'm going to do. I said, I, he said, start filing down. I'm just getting bored. I have not changed. So I said, I'm going to do it. Then I looked up around the next day and I said, there's an office. Never forget. An office made under glass. And it says on top, the control room. You know, the control room, all the parts come first to the control room. And me, I didn't care that they're going to they're gonna kill me. I had the guts and walk over there. I walk in and knock at the door. The guy comes over, opens the door for me. And I speak right away in German. I'm a mechanic. I would like to work with you. He says, good. Very good. Then he said to me, you know something? You were lucky. You crossed over here to me without authority. If the guard would have seen you walking to me, he would have killed you. And be walking, working with him. He was very happy with me. And guess what he did? Every morning at lunchtime, he brought me pieces of bread. Could be jam, could be bewater, cheese, everything. He wrapped it in a piece of paper, threw it in the trash can. Remember, the office was from, here, from windows, from glass. When he turned around that way, looked out with that way, I know the, the bread is there already. I put the bread behind my shirt, and I eat it. I didn't worry about that. Somebody's going to see or not, because he didn't care. The months went by. And one day, I'm always talking to myself, why did I do it? Why did I take the bread and put it in the drawer? Suddenly, guess what? Five minutes later, somebody comes around and hits me from the back. I wind up on the floor. I, I said to myself, David, don't get up. If he steps on you, get up fast. If he steps on you, he's going to kill you because I'm just boned. I got up. He says, open it. German of the assessment. I opened it. What's his desk? I said, that's broke. Who gave it to you? We had people. I don't know. Maybe it was at the factory. They were getting packages to the Red Cross. No, Kemp did it. I don't know. The desk people must have connection over there because they wouldn't give him just one. I was getting every Sunday two cigarettes. I don't smoke and I still don't smoke. I said I got it from my Czechoslovakian. You know, take checks from Europe. Mm. Because they were getting packages. He didn't believe it. He saw it, what was going on. If I squeal on the guy, I'm going to be dead anyway. Why should I do it? He tried to help me. I said it. I got it from my Czechoslovakian. He didn't believe it. They walked away. As he walked away, walked to the camp, six o'clock, oh, this thing, that's a, let the hang down. Six o'clock, they're calling my number. Then I got scared. Took me over, took me into the, behind the electric wires. I got behind the electric wires. I waited there till nine o'clock at night. Then they let me out, because nine o'clock they were closing up. Wake up in the morning, there's nothing to eat for me. They told me I have to go to the front back, so I didn't have nothing the night before. I don't have it not now. Now I'm going back to the front back. They were all over there. They opened the gates again, put me inside. Everybody goes to work. Now an assessor walked in with a machine gun. And I said to myself, God, this is it. And he said to me, come with me. He took me outside. Then I figured I'm killed. He's going to kill me because who's going to see me now in the camp down? They're going to see me behind the barrack. I went behind the barrack, walked around. We kept on walking. I said, what's going on, though? He just wanted to get farther away, farther away. He opens the door, he talks, go in. And he says, guess what? The, the, all the commander for the camp is there. I walk in, and what do you think I did? I said, commander in German, ich muss the three gates of Arbeit. I have to go back to work. They need those guns to fight for the country. He looks up and he starts laughing. When he starts laughing, then I got scared. I thought he was going to take a gun. He's like, and guess what he said? Go back. Go back to the Arbeit. Keep working. I, yeah, I even went, I had the guts to say thank you and I walked out. <laughs>
But he told me next time if I see you here, I hang you upside down. At that time when I walked out from camp, no, from the his office, he started walking. I said to him, I said, David, don't give up. Went back to work. The American already in Europe. They landed. They want to be first in Berlin to catch Hitler. Mm-hmm. The Russians were closer from Auschwitz. What they did after two years, they're closing up Auschwitz. On January 23rd, they closed up Auschwitz. I think it's the 23rd. Where we going now? They put us in a kettle car now. They put three guns on the same train, and we're traveling to a place we didn't even know where, Mauthausen. It's in Austria. We got there in Mauthausen, and Mauthausen said, we have no place for you. We have no place. And then normal would take five hours. It took us five and a half days. They were piled in so many people. In those. They put on train, three guns, and the guns, they thought that the American and the Russians going to bomb the Right? Right. They didn't bump. They bumped the railroad track. So we were traveling 20 kilometers forward. There's no way to go. They took it. Can you imagine 50 over people had no toilets, no food, no nothing. I was just going to ask, how many people were in the car? Like, how big are we talking about a space here? A railroad track. That's just a railroad yeah, track. Yeah, yeah. yeah, over 50, maybe more. There was no toilet. There was nothing there. No food, nothing. Go to D.C. Go to the museum that they have there. They have one of the, the cattle cars in their exhibits at the Holocaust Museum there. They're big, but mm-hmm. they're not meant for 50 people or... Right. That's, and then it's, it's... That's mine. Like, I just can't even... Yeah, they were piled up. It was crazy. You know, it, it's, it, was, it was unbelievable. We wind up in Mauthausen. They gave us a wash. We gave us... We took a wash. There was no... no just a faucet. We were looking. They gave us something to eat. And guess what? Stripped naked, they gave me the belt, gave me a pair of shoes and a cup, a head from coffee, told us to go outside. You walked around naked, thousands of people out, everybody tried to be in the middle, and people were rubbing each other's butt. And then we went in, they gave us clothing, put us on the floor, put us laying overnight there. Now we had, I don't know if you heard about it, we had capos in camp, those policemen. There were right. some, all of them were prisoners. The Jewish guy, too, they were bad guys, some of them. I got beaten one time. I don't know. And then we went, we put us on the floor. They gave us blankets. It, the couple threw a blanket on top of us. Then they walked on top of us, put the other blanket, you know, all over it. They were, they were making for us like the, the, the slaves to them. And then woke up in the morning. We washed ourselves. They gave us a piece of bread. And guess what? We go to another camp now. They were loaded up on another camp. So this is this would be number four now. Yeah. Wow. This camp was a sub-camp. They called it Guzen. And then we get there, a small camp. Why we mechanic? Now I'm finished with the guns. Now I'm going to be building the Stukas. You know the Stukas, right? The, the, the planes. 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 Yeah. The planes. Yeah. yeah. They would, they would yeah. Put us on trucks. We went there from this Guzen number two. He had four. Uh, Matthaus had four sub-camps. It was a small camp. It was rough. It was getting rough and rough and I'm getting skinny and skinny. I was glad they could still walk and talk. Then we went to work. Built. We worked in a mountain. If you ever see, you would have seen two tunnels. It, too bad I didn't have the book. We had two tunnels in the mountain. Mm. We walked in there. The plane was high. We walked around on top of here. I was sitting, now I'm building a plane. Time went by on May the 5th, 1945, after five years. Well, four, well it's already four, five years. 
Five and a half years. Four different camps, five and a half years. Yep. Now, the Germans have, just for historical context, the Germans have surrendered now at this point? On May the 5th, yeah. May the, f- May the 5th, right? Yes. Okay. So, what, what do you call it, Dave? Your your birthday? Well, I was going to say, this is, yeah. December 6th. Every, now, on May 5th, I double my birthday. Every year, I'm born again. It's great. Yeah. You know, you talk amazing. about born again, that's crazy. Now, uh, what happened? A roll call. There were always, I forgot to mention, there, there was always roll call. There were more, in this camp, Guzmantu was more dead camp in the barracks than living already. But this time we had machine guns. Now, what happened in smaller camps? They were fighting a lot of survivors because they were killing them all. Just, they, they, if they killed somebody, they were fighting, they using. And they told us, the American going to come down mountain, noontime, you're going to be free. When you hear rumbling, the tanks in the mountain, you know they're here. Anybody walks out before the American camp gets killed. We, we believe them because the, the machine gun was there. I can hear rumbling. A lot of people running out and screaming and hollering. Now, we had at that time a group of people that came from Yugoslavia, Romania, Hungary. They came out of the 44. I was over there four and a half years. They came just now. They were running their strength. I was glad they could still walk and talk. They came. The American here. The American told us, nobody walks out from the camp. You're free. But nobody walks out until we find out any diseases. They were right. Three days later, they said, you're free, no disease. But meantime, they gave us something to eat. Now picture this. For five years, I live on a piece of bread. Here they give me a box with food. And I'll never forget those words. Don't overeat. If you're going to overeat, you're going to die. I opened the box, and I saw bread and butter and cakes and cookies and jam, everything. And he told me not to eat. How, how 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 can you hand that to somebody who's been starving I, for five I did. years just and say, say yeah. don't overeat? Like, if you don't want them to over, hand them oats. Like, I'm not going to overeat oats. You can't. It like dries your mouth out. Like, you yeah, got to muscle that, that time, down. You're hungry. But you want to eat like, because you want to survive. Well, yeah, so what I did. Just, yeah. Well, the amount that the survivors were given in terms of food was so little that there were instances that they would just give them K rations and like the meat rations and people were getting very sick. There yeah. were stomach ruptures and people were dying, which is yeah. where we're well, getting to right. don't overeat. Yeah. Well, because they're, they're so used to having such small, I mean, you're, I yeah. mean, your entire, it's almost like your entire biology yeah, has but changed it, at that point. It's easy to talk about it, not to be there. Yeah. yeah. What yeah, I did, I said to myself, if you're not going to eat, you're going to die. Right. Yeah. Now I took a piece of bread. I took a bite. And I put it on the table. And I counted to 10, 20. And I took another bite. Guess it worked because I'm here now. Yeah. And then I'm free. Then he said, you can go any country you wanted to if you want to stay here and live here. You want to go back to Poland? You're going to go back to Germany? You want to stay here? Or you want to go to Italy? I said to myself, I'm going to Italy. I opened an office. Great choice. Yeah. Yeah. I said, it's a nice office over there. I walked in. And he told me, I'm a, I'm a survivor. They called us survivors already at that time. Mm-hmm. And then he said, you know what they decided? I said, I want to go to America. He said, to me, you know what, America? There's a quota. I said, what is a quota? I didn't even know what a quota meant at that time. He explained to me, you know. And then he said, if you get a, a sponsor. I didn't know what a sponsor. He explained to me what it is. Then the, you can go before. And then I said, I made up my mind. I want to go to Italy. I wanted to go to Italy because they told me the office. In the Italy, you have more 
treatment. I went to Italy, I lived there for almost 11, 10, 11 years. But for four months, the doctors took care of me. Can you imagine I was 15 years old and I, I weighed 78 pounds? Good God. And I went to Italy and after 10, 10 months, they were, we lived in apartments, or snacks in like apartment. And everybody, the girls and guys said, every, we held it up, what we sitting around here? I said, we thought we have a way to live. The England occupied at that time. They occupied. So they could, we, I tell you the truth, there was some black market was going on there. If somebody need tires, we've talked to an Englishman. I never told you those things. Ooh, another sneak peek. <laughs> this is an exclusive. Yeah, I didn't want a bad guy. That's why. We did a lot of things. We survived. And then I went to Paris. I got out in Paris to train. I talked to somebody in German. There's a Jewish organization that told me yes. I got there. I walk in. The guy said, you're not the only one, the first one. There's plenty here already. And I told him about how I signed up to go to America, everything. And he said, if you want to live in France, you have to go to work, the first thing. Because we have a lot of people with black market. We don't need any more. You know, it's, it, was, it was going on like this. And then I told him, he asked me, give me any less names, Jewish less names, most popular less names. Why? Because he said, maybe you have family here. I said, I don't know. Then he said, we figure out. You have to be on the work on time. You have to quit soon. Oh, no, no, no. I had a question uh, about was, your, I had a question about the family. Oh. That's what I was asking. Yeah. And then I went to work. He put me to work. There's a section in Paris. I don't know if you ever go to Paris, only for Jewish people there. They come and eat over there in the afternoon for a beer and a sandwich. I worked there. At that time went by. A lady called, the guy calls me up over there and said, it's almost two years. Somebody wants to talk. A lady wants to talk to you. He said, it's okay, a lady talk. I don't say if it's a grandpa. I don't care. I want to talk to somebody. I walk in there. The lady's sitting there. If you were talking, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, I can't find nobody. And then she said, maybe I'll find somebody. I think I'm the second cousin from your father's side. I said to myself, I don't care to bother you, anybody. Just I want to go there. I went there. I met there. We were talking. Then she said, I think I said, maybe, yeah. And then... She says, why don't you come to my apartment? Mostly they had apartment over there in France. They don't have homes, you know, in the city. They have apartment. They own an apartment. I went there. As soon as we got in, she made a phone call. Then we served some food on the kitchen. And then a young girl walks in. And she introduced us. Her name is Marie. And uh, she was a Holocaust for three and a half years, working in a factory, making cloth for the army. And she explained that she's a survivor. And she explained, I'm a survivor. And then I told Marie, I'm going to America. Then we start talking to each other. We walked out. We started dating each other. And guess what? After two years, I got a call from the American, Germany again. They have an office over there in a camp. The, all the ship came over there. First, anybody want to go to America, sign up in Germany. I told Marie, come with me to America. Where are you going to stay here? And she said, I have family here. I said, yeah, you have family. Remember they killed three brothers of you in Paris in, in the Nazis? You could have them again. It's Europe. And then she said, I'm going. Now she has to wait for another quarter, right, or someplace. I said, the only way to do is let's go to Germany, get married. Then you go back to Paris, get rid of the place, and come. That's what we did. We went to Germany. We got married. Then I said, Mary, yeah, I can't go now home. 
sell the place and come back. She came back. We lived there almost two more years there. We had a sponsor. Somebody sponsored. I found out when I came to America. That's the way I came to America. It took us 11 days to come to America. We stopped first in Canada dropped off some people because we were waiting for a ship. I remember the ship. name was General Bletchford, a transport ship. I don't know what they brought to Europe. They didn't have beds. We slept in hammocks. And then we came to America. There was a highest. The boat went up in New York City, not Dallas Island anymore, in New York City. The highest was there. It was a Jewish organization at that time. I got my name, everything. And she said, we have somebody sponsored you. You have to go to the sponsor. They give you for six months rent. It had everything ready for me. It's a factory. Guess where? Like men's clothing factory. I said, I don't do this thing. She said, Dave, the war is over. No more. They don't need guns anymore. And then I worked over there. And then time went by. And we had a daughter. We had, I have one daughter, three grandchildren in ninth grade. I don't bother them. They don't bother me. Because I'm <laughs> on fine. <laughs> Only one problem I have. My grandson gave his, has four, grand, four sons, right? Uh-huh. Each name is, starts with a C. I said to myself, what should I do? <laughs> I went to the Bible, guess what? And I picked up the Bible, and I looked for a C. I found two brothers, Cain and Abel, remind? Yeah. I said, hey, somebody said there may be, may be more of them. <laughs> and I asked him, tell me, what's with those C? He said, Grandpa, they're all of them football, uh, sports, sports people. <laughs> well, you know, we, we have uh, Carmine and Chase. Okay, and, Chase and, and Older. And, and Carter. Yeah. And, and one time he asked, how come you know them and their names better? I'm like, oh, it's a sports fan, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, know who so, you named them. No, I'm here in America. I what I'm doing. I, had, I went to two years later. Yeah, but I had a problem. I spoke four languages. I don't speak English. Well, that doesn't sound like a Oh, yeah, well. Yeah, that's that would be a problem. Yeah. It, it, yeah. So, You're doing pretty good now. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, pretty solid. It's doing a problem. great now. But what happened? I brought a dictionary right away. That's what I, when I go to school, that's what I tell them. But addiction, everything. I tell them what I lived through. A lot of kids happened to me yesterday. Two girls were crying. I was sitting in the front of. But I was telling a story about their mother. That my mother passed away when I was born. Can you imagine living with somebody and not knowing the mother? And I always, sometimes I wake up in the morning. I said, I wake up day. I said, Why me? I never. You know, I tell the kids in school, stay in school, get educated. One thing I tell them, I will never forget, never forgive what they did to me. Anytime I lick on my arm, and if I have to live in hate, I have no life. Because you live with hate, I tell him. I will live through the same thing five years, what I went through. I tell these kids, stay in school, get educated. With education, you can be anything you want to do. And listen once in a while to your parents. That's what I tell them. <laughs> they were once your age, too. And I tell them, if somebody bullies you, don't yep. say a word. Nothing. Just walk away. Because it's their problem, not yours. That's my life, and that's what I'm doing. I'm doing this for 35 years already. Speaking, I'm talking to thousands and millions of people. It's amazing. Your story is yeah. worldwide. I mean, it's, it's the, fascinating. The last one was on Facebook. You're going to look it up. Can you imagine I was taking the picture here, everything? 55 million. 15 wow. million. Wow. 15 million people. Watch what's going to happen to you. <laughs> Remember the guy was here with the whole production? I wasn't there. That- oh, no, he wasn't there. <laughs> no. You put the screen up over there. A schmutter, you know, a rug they put up there. (laughs) 
And he's going to teach you some Yiddish. For excellent. This podcast. Excellent. Awesome. Now, just to kind of loop back a little bit um, to go back to when you were taken to the camps. Do you know what happened to the rest of your family? No. You have you were separated no. and then what happened? I find look, my father was with me camp, right? Right. What happened? I wasn't with him until Mauthausen. When I went to Goose and built the planes, I didn't know what he signed up for. All those years I saw him one time. When remember they put me behind the electric wire, he find out he lived in a different barrack. I don't know where he slept. And this is Mount Housen, or is this, so this is Auschwitz? Auschwitz. Auschwitz right. yeah. I didn't even know where. Now he he knows I'm in Mauthausen. He didn't know I'm went to. He must have known that. But I don't know why he signed up. What he signed up, he didn't send him. After the war, guess what? I found out he's in America. Guess what? My stepmother survived, and a half sister survived. All the half sister, the little brother. I read up. Somebody told me now they read up on my. I think my daughter that she. Six months before they killed my half sister in the brother. I don't. I think I know what's happened, but I don't want to. I don't and know. Sure, yeah. I don't. Know. So, David arrived in America in 1950. Yeah, we did a little bit of research a few years back. His father arrived in 1945. So, this is five years of him living in America and no sort of correspondence. And it's a difficult subject to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. That's for anybody. But we do have the, the letter communication Dave had requested from the red cross to kind of find out what happened to his father. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way that he was able to figure out what happened. Can you imagine all the thing that I went through is and I blame him for it. I don't blame this, that money. I don't know what she has. He got married to somebody else before, so what? The only for all the whole family now, what I know, is a my half sister Dorit lives in someplace in the south, South Carolina. Yeah, we could, we could, we could, And she said, "Dave, I don't understand it. I know what the one because she was here when I came to America. I visited them in New York one time with my wife. They were just like strangers treating me like he think he's still back in, the, in Poland." When she, my wife was locked up and I had to top in the kitchen, she said, what's she running left? Well, she runs behind my leg. I, there's an expression something. Hey, she wants to help you. Nothing was good. It's a character from a person, that's all. But was, I'm, the, I'm the only one that survived over there. I think so. So Was, was there anybody else that you knew in the camps that you had ever looked up? Any no. Of the, the, I didn't. No. They didn't care about me. Everybody was for himself. Yeah. Was because if, more, they, if they could take for me the piece of bread, they would take it. Yeah, yeah. Was it more of like animosity like that, or was it just like nobody really wanted to relive that so soon after? I, 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 nobody I wanted just to looked out for talk myself. about it. Yeah. I had a little bit of You know why? Because I was growing up with no brothers, no sisters. Mm-hmm. Anything I wanted to do with, can you imagine? I had to do it myself. Mm-hmm. I told you in the beginning when I, they play soccer, the only way I get involved, I, I kick the ball. Because, you know, something, to some people, I wasn't religious enough. Would you believe it? I don't want to talk about that. Wow. What, what would you say is your your biggest takeaway from, from all of this when you sort of reflect on your life? I survived. How I made it. How I made it. I know every day. I told you. I prayed to God. Please, God, let me see the light the next day. I, think, so I told every day the last day. I, I think that's a for anybody, you know, I, nobody has gone through the I, Holocaust. I, there's a saying in, in Hebrew. Since, but like anybody going through 
any kind of rough times. You can't wait for it or wish for it to be over. You can only hope for the next day and the next day. I told you I went to sleep. I I didn't even know the guy, how many guys died next to me. Yeah. I woke up in the morning, I'm here. The guy is gone. And if they could take for me, if I, in the beginning, maybe I was stupid and I would took some piece, put it behind my breath and my my shirt. They they wouldn't have took it for me. When when we talked to the students about that, when David saying that everybody was for themselves, it wasn't out of animosity. Yeah. Sure, no, it wasn't. It, survival. It was, it was pure was, survival. Yeah. It was, this person had bread. So I I'm don't, take and it, right. I need to eat. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes we have survivors. I don't, I don't want to mention names. They had it so good in camp. They could give away bread. I said, oh, you lived in a country club. She said, no, no, I lived in a, I don't want to talk about it. If somebody wants to talk to me how how was in camp, I don't want to hear it. What would be competing who's hovered more? Yeah. That's crazy. It's not a competition. You want to talk yeah, to me how yeah. you made out the coming to America, that's okay with me. Don't talk to me. Because it's full of I don't want to say it. Huh? Oh you can I mean you can say yeah, you can yeah, say it. Yeah, I don't want to this public wouldn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, can I ask you a question? If you could say anything to Hitler, what would it be? First I would tell him Adolf, if you don't like the Jewish people, send them off in the country. You don't have to kill them. Right? Yeah. But what happened? The guy committed suicide. If I would see him laying there, I would ask him, why it took you so long? <laughs> <laughs> we walked this thing. He saw me once and he said, yeah, I, we're going to do it. Yeah, I like to hear him say that. Like but the that. kids asked me like this, you know. And I, I came up, are you hard? I said, Dave. If nobody asks, I'm going to set it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the best when the students ask it because then they all just go, oh, <laughs> clapping and laughing. A lot of them applauding, the laughing. You know? That's so great. That's a, that, so I guess one of the other questions I wanted to tie back, what I thought was really interesting was the never forgive and never forget sort of mantra that you have. Yeah, but to, to Hitler. But I don't live with hate because if you live with hate, you think about it. What life would I have, right? If I would sit there and dwell on it the whole day, but what I went through five years, I would have no life. Right. When I'm finished speaking here in school, everything. I, I was yesterday in a school over 400. It was in New Jersey. I said, my dad, how did I miss that here? Because that, would you believe it? I'm the first one in this school to talk about the Holocaust. Wow. And now they said, never forget, Dave. I said, well, I hope so. Have you met anyone at a school or in any event that you've done that's denied the Holocaust or said like you're not telling the truth now? What do you think you would say to someone who would say, because I I think recently in the news, I would ask the first, where did you live? Would you live after the war? You read about it? It's always, I I always tell them that's politics. It's a dirty business. Stay out of it. Right. The most important thing to tell them in school, education. If you can go to high school, if you can make the university, Go to tech school. Somebody has to build America. Yeah, I tell. I them, agree. There's nothing wrong with it. And I tell. I I get my car to fix. They charge me fifty dollars an hour. And the teacher said, "Dave, I'm quitting. I'm going to fix a car." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been doing that for free. Yeah. Oh man. Reassess my career. Um, I'm just trying to think of the other question I want to ask you as far as bullying. I mean, I guess bullying, and then I know I, I read, a, I did a little research into some of the other interviews that you yeah, did. Yeah, but I have a saying for bullying. Yeah. If somebody bullies you, it's their problem, not yours. The only, that's what I'm telling the kids, the students. Don't say a word. 
Don't do nothing. Just walk away. It's their problem, not yours. Then I tell them, hey, talk to your teacher if it doesn't stop, or talk to your mother, or talk to your parents. Yes, once in a while you can talk to your parents too. Listen to them. They will want children too. That's what I tell them. I think one other question that I have as far as, you know, currently, you know, we talked a little bit about Charlottesville. We talked a little Mm -hmm. bit about Pittsburgh and some of the more recent events. Does it scare you to see those things happening still in prevalence? I mean, does that does that concern you or I mean, as a survivor? I always told my daughter, it's for your children, children, children. I'm worried. Forget about politics. Right. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Nothing about that. I just I don't want to hear politics. Forget it. It's a dirty business. I told I told me how I commented it. Oh, boss here is in politics. I always tell you, you're in dirty business. <laughs> <laughs> so, any other questions? Greg, did you have any other questions? Uh, no, I I just really wanted to thank you for sharing with this, and I like your. I could pay for the hours. On, so what are you yeah, quitting on me? Uh, <laughs> no, you're going to send the bill I'm, right I'm here to Taylor saying. Cooper. He's the executive producer. <laughs> but I, I I like what you have to say about you know bullying, and it's their problem. Not but yours. I, I, that, yeah, that's maybe a very maybe good 10, message, 15 minutes I get involved with those, education. Yeah. Especially yeah. That's what I tell them. The students. most education in life is education. Yep. Not everybody has to be a doctor, a lawyer. It can be anything you want. Somebody has to build America. Yeah. There's plenty of things to do. You can have 50 million doctors, but that's okay. there's not going to be any roads. So. so I know, Jeff, You, I love what the... The museum and the center does. Mm-hmm. Do you have any current events that are or things that are coming up that maybe people who are listening to this podcast that want to get involved? What would be the best way to do that? Ooh, the plug. Yes. Hello, listeners. <laughs> so we are currently planning a professional development trip to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. This is targeted towards teachers. So any teachers who are interested in attending this trip, uh, we do have some space, but it's filling up quickly, so call soon, and I'll give all the information at the end of this plug. We are going to be seeing their new exhibit, America and the Holocaust. We will be a- accompanied by educators from Gratz College, as well as some speakers from our museum that are focused, their testimonies and experiences are focused on America and the Holocaust, so it's specifically their testimonies are in the exhibit, which is kind of cool, so you get to learn about it and hear about it. We also will be planning some uh, open to the public events that are going to be happening in the fall as we're getting towards the end of the school year. But most importantly, as next school year approaches, if you are ever interested in having a Holocaust survivor like Mr. Tuck or one of our other 23 speakers come to your school, please contact us. You can visit us at www.hamec.org or you can Call us directly here at the Holocaust Awareness Museum, 215-464-4701, or give us an email at info at hammock.org. We are happy to set you up with one of our speakers. And and just a, a quick aside, so another thing that David didn't talk about is the, the impact that it has on the students. Um, there are a lot of students that will individually reach out to our survivors and maintain relationships and friendships. I mean, David has had books written about him and uh, a play where somebody had taken your experience and they adopted it that way. And you know, he, he's got a, he's got a David Tuck fan club, which is pretty cool. (laughs) I am officially a part of that fan club. You and my, you and my wife. I mean, she's probably like the president of the David Tuck fan club. Are there stickers or t-shirts? 
we're making them. I would just like a Dave. Dave. I want to Dave Dave's Dave's face on. But he does Jane, have a book. Jane, oh, when he you, does have a book. Jane, when you What's, listen to this, I need you to make a David Tuck T-shirt because I I want one. So, but yeah, David, you have a, what, you, what, you have a book, is, right? I have a book. It's funny how I missed the book. I just walked. <laughs> he called me. I Dave. I'm here for you. Usually, I wake for him. This way, I took. I walked out without the book. It's, I so, thought he has something here. We oh, we have books in our library, but they're like for teachers to take out and bring back. They just uh, haven't brought them back. Yeah, they haven't brought them back. You know something? You have a flyer here. All the thing, but you he wanted to ask. You could have asked him. We have a flyer here, right? I I I give him information. <laughs> Don't cut any what, of this. Dave, this no, is no, great. I'm leaving <laughs> this all in. This is all staying in. Yeah. What is what is the name of your book, Dave? The name of your book? Dave Tuck, Holocaust Survivor. And you can find that A, a on... story. No, don't buy it from them. Just call up here. We get a half price. We can call it from... We you can, can call, call us. Call it, okay. is, it is available on Amazon, but reach out to us directly. Cool. Give us a call. Drop us an email. We'll cut you cool. a deal. That's fine. Call Dave, me. David, yeah. thank you so much for letting us tell your story on our show. I am immensely grateful that you would share no. your story with us well, here. So yeah. thank you both so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Foundation Radio is recorded and produced by Adam Barnard and Sam Kreps. Our intro and outro is produced by Dumb Ugly. Special thanks to Greg Mead, Joe Keen, Jeff Quinn, and Dr. Ruth Almy. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at foundation underscore radio. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash foundation radio pod. This has been a Foundation Radio production. <laughs>